Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Happy Father's Day. I know you've heard it multiple times today, but yeah, it's worth celebrating. It's a big deal. (laughs) Thanks, Doriana. I need the support. Uh, I get real insecure real quick up here. So, uh, well, if you know this about me, uh, you probably don't know this about me. Uh, I I love uh, George W. Bush. Um, I think because he's probably the first president when I was 18. And uh, there's just something about like him that just feels like grandpa. And uh, I just love it. And he has this quote. And he said, "Uh, I've been to war and I've raised twins. And if I had a choice, I'd rather go to war. Uh, and there's, there's a reality to it because being a father is, is no easy task. And uh, in the U.S. alone, there are 24.7 million kids in our country that don't have a relationship with their biological father. About 20 million uh, have no, no one that stepped into the gap, like a stepfather uh, or maybe an adopted father, about one in three kids. And statistics would show that ha- not having a father leads to an increased suicide rates, increased poverty levels, behavioral and mental health issues, high school dropouts, homelessness, juvenile detention rates, and even substance abuse. And if fatherlessness was a disease, it would definitely be considered an epidemic in our country. And affects, and really, if you're honest, it affects more people than the coronavirus and uh, has much deeper, devastating effects. So I, I thought today that what we would do is uh, in this series, Beautiful Mess, and if you're new to the rim, well, what we've chosen to do this year is we have a Bible reading plan. It's just like a chapter a day that we're journeying together and just inviting you to come along. And if you have a Bible reading plan, great. We don't want to intercept that. But most of us, if we're honest, don't have a direction. So to go, hey, here's a Bible reading plan. Journey with us. And there's something really powerful and beautiful knowing that other people in the church are reading the same scripture that you're reading, that you can talk about it, link up. And then we just decided, what if in 2021, our whole sermon series were just based upon what we read in the scripture? And so this week, we've been in 2 Corinthians, and we should be there. And so we've just been teaching from that. But today, uh, what I want to do is I want to just kind of take a small detour And I want to teach something a little bit different. And I was kind of looking through the five chapters that we read this week and was wrestling and just felt the Lord kind of leading in a different direction. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to land in Psalm 68, verse 4. But uh, here's, here's, let me say this real quick. We're going to, typically we go through just the scripture systematically, just verse by verse. And today I'm going to kind of show you the the meta-narrative of the scripture. So I'm going to use a lot of verses, which isn't necessarily typical to kind of teach us one thing that's a theme of the Bible. And hopefully this, this will be really, really helpful. But as we dive in, uh, I want to kind of kickstart with this quote that has been really life-changing to me over the course of the last few years and is really, if I'm honest, like the backbone of this message. The great author and theologian A.W. Tozer, he, he said this, 
He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So to put it on a personal level, what just came into your mind, what, we, what filled the canvas of your heart when I said God, that that's the most important thing about you. Because the reason is that many of us, like, we're, we move towards our image of God, that we were created by God and for God. And so there's this pull in our heart. And so what comes to mind when someone thinks about God, ultimately is kind of determining the direction that we're headed towards God. And so what is it that when you think about, when you think about God? And I think there, there are hundreds of different ways. These are just a few, because I think some of you, in having conversations, some of us, when we think about God, then we view him as this impersonal cosmic force. He's light, he's energy, he's divine something. Maybe he doesn't have a name, he doesn't have a face, but it's just this energy source that is in all places. Or maybe when you view God, you see him as a character, like he's an old grandpa that's really, really sweet, and, and we love him, but he's not really in touch with what's going on today. The font on his iPhone is so large that you can read it from across the room, or he has trouble getting through Spotify or using Apple Music, but he's really sweet, and he doesn't really speak much into your life. You don't really go to him with like your big concerns, but you do love him, or, or maybe you view him as this divine scorekeeper that's just tallying up your makes or your misses, your wins, your loss. And, and so you don't really maybe know where you stand, but you do know that there's a day of reckoning coming. And for some reason, your view of him is that he is consistently angry. Or maybe he's more like a heavenly butler. And none of us would actually say this out loud. But we don't really need God unless, unless all of a sudden we have a want or a need or things go wrong. And then all of a sudden he's kind of like, hey, Siri or hey, Alexa, could you do this for me? And hopefully he'll swoop in and he'll fix whatever the problem is. And then we say, thanks, Siri. Thanks, God. I can take it from here. And we could go on for the rest of this gathering just talking about the different ideas that come into our mind when we think about God but today, we've got to get this right. We've got to get this right. A.W. Tozer goes on with his quote, and he says this. He says, you and I, we tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So just to give you an illustration about one of the ones that I just talked about. Like, if your view of God is that he's a divine scorekeeper, and it's all about your makes and your misses, then what you're going to do is, is the focus of your life is just to become a better version of you and to just not do as many bad things as you did last year. And hopefully as you stand before God, you've done enough to like tip the scales. And that's the kind of life that, that it looks like for you to chase after God. But I want you to see this. If you have a flawed view of God, you're going to end up with a flawed life. If you have a flawed view of God, you're going to end up with a flawed life because you and I were created by God and for God. And there is this draw, this pull inside of us towards the creator. And if our view of the creator is flawed, then our whole life is going to end up flawed. So it's essential that we get it right. And church, I love the fact that 
that God doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't just leave us to our own imaginations to figure out who God's like. He's not silent on the conversation. He's been revealing himself and showing himself to us. And he does it most clearly in the person of Jesus. And for us, Jesus is, I mean, God who was in heaven, left his throne room, comes to earth, wraps himself in human flesh. The scripture time and time again goes, hey, if you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. He's the perfect personification of God. And so Christ appears and then Christ begins to teach. He teaches us who God really is and how we can relate to him. He teaches us, yes, that he's creator. He teaches us that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, that he's sovereign, that he's judge, and that he's Lord. But Jesus teaches us one thing about God above all else. Above all else, 189 times in the four biographies of Jesus' life that Jesus teaches this about God. And he teaches this, this more than anything else. That God is our Father. That God is our Father. Just think about the core text when it comes to even how Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. As he pulls the disciples close together and he says, hey, listen, as you pray, this is how you get to pray. You start with this. And many of us, listen, we know it. We know the first two words. Even if we have no church background whatsoever, it's our Father who art in heaven. Like, our Father. Like, he, he comes to them and says, hey, when you approach the, the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe, you can approach him and you can say, our Father. The word that Jesus uses here is the Aramaic word Abba. And, and there's no correlation. There's no really connection in the English language. Even in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, they, they couldn't translate it. The, the Greeks are like, we don't have a word for that. So it's the, one of the only words in the, the New Testament that's still in Aramaic. It's like Abba. We don't have a word for that. And the word doesn't translate quite perfectly to father. Because Abba was the most endearing word that a little Jewish boy or Jewish girl could call their father. It was wildly intimate. But it wasn't just for kids. And that Thanksgiving meal or those Christmas meal, when everybody are gathered around the table, even as an adult, this would be the endearing word that you would call your father. Abba. Maybe the closest word that we have would be like the word Papa. And so Jesus comes before the God of the universe, the God that spoke the world into existence, and he says, when you approach him, you have all access pass, and you can call him Abba, Papa. That that's how the Father wants to relate to you. Now listen, this is, I believe, maybe the biggest revelation of Jesus' life. We hear that, and a lot of us, were like underwhelmed by it, but this is ultimately what got Jesus killed. In John chapter 15, if you look in verse 18, Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath, and the Jews and the religious leaders pull, they kind of pull aside, and they say, hey, here's the deal. This guy heals people on the Sabbath, but not only that, he calls Yahweh Father, and we're going to kill him for this. Like, we're going to take him out. So this is a huge revelation. Even Jesus would say it. He says this. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father are one. 
He goes on to say, let your light shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your father. Not your boss, not your ruler, not even your king or lord, but your father. But that they would glorify your father who is in heaven. And you can track this all the way throughout the four gospels and into the New Testament that when you approach the omnipotent, sovereign king of the universe, that you and I have the ability to approach him as father. But let's be honest, this is all cute and nice and dandy, but there's a huge problem. I've heard it said that God choosing to relate to us as father was a horrible PR move on his part. If God is primarily showing you that he wants you to know him as father, then let's be honest, then one of the enemy's number one tactics is going to be to destroy fatherhood. We're called the fatherless generation, and it's not by accident. It's by the evil plan of hell. Because the enemy knows that if he can destroy our concept of father by breaking our relationships with our earthly dads, then he can create a stumbling block that some of us may never overcome in our relationships with God. And we see the fallout of this everywhere in our world. Like if you just think about your earthly dads, so many different types of dads. I mean, and we, I'm just going to just shrink it down to just a few. But some of us today, when we think about our earthly father, we had an absent father. He's not really present in the occasion. Maybe it's because of death or divorce or dysfunction or disinterest. But regardless, they're not in the picture. Some of us, we had abusive fathers. And this father, not only, I mean, didn't, he didn't bless us, but he took from us, either emotionally, verbally, or physically. And this father injured your life and abused our lives. Or maybe you had the apathetic father, the passive father. Like he's in the mix, but he's kind of like a non-factor. Like he's in the room, but he's not really in the story. He's just sitting on the sidelines. Or maybe... You had a performance-based father. And this was the, the dad that, that you, you looked and you said, hey, if, if I do well enough at sports or if my grades are good enough or if I do the right thing, then I get the hug. Then, then I get the, that a boy. But if I don't, then I'll just try harder next time. And some of us, if we were lucky, like we know that our dads weren't perfect, but we had an empowering dad. We had that, that type of dad. I heard someone share it this way, and I kind of love it. And it kind of like, I don't know, it just kind of wrecked me, so I've been processing it. But it's this idea of like imagining a dad with three kids, and he, and he, and he bedtime, and he's putting him to bed, and he goes up to, you know, the first, the first child. He opens up the door, and he's like, hey, you know, hey, sweetheart, like, you're my baby. And, and, and I love you more than all the other kids. You're, you're my favorite. And he says it loud enough that the, 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 that the other kids can hear it as well. I love you. You're my favorite. And there's this sense of kind of giddiness because the kids know it'll be their turn in just a little bit. The dad walks out of this room, goes up to the next one. He says, son, you know I love you. And, and, and I, I love you the most. Like you're, you're my favorite. You're, you're my one boy. You're my favorite. 
And then he goes to the next one and he says, sweetheart, you're my oldest. You're my first. And you know you're my favorite. And I love you the most. And there's a sense that every single kid in the family believes that they really are loved and treasured. And then there's this great comfort in knowing that dad loves all the other kids as well. And that, God, that this dad is going to help his kids be all that God has created them to be. And when they trip or when they fall, he'll be there to pick them back up. And this wasn't, it's not a passive dad. This isn't just do whatever you want. Stay out as late as you want because you and I both know like that's not loving. Even as a kid, when, when our dads would, would let us step into danger to take a risk, there's this part of you that's like, why don't you love me enough to keep me from this? Like, why, why, why don't you love me enough to put a little bit of a curfew, to put some boundaries? Like even just in our wildest imaginations, we all longed for a dad like that. The empowering dad. Church, I want you to know that God is not simply a reflection of your earthly dad. He's not just a bigger version of your dad. He's a perfect version of your dad. He's a perfect heavenly father. He is everything that you dreamed your dad would be and so much more. He's everything that you longed for. The psalmist in the scripture that Chris just read said this in 68 verse four, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and celebrate before him. So here, just in verse four, you see a majestic God, a powerful God, an omnipotent God riding on the clouds. And this isn't just some tiny God. Like, this is a big God. And he chooses to be knowable to us in a very powerful and personal way. Verse five, God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless, a champion of widows. God provides homes for those who are deserted and he leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. So watch this, church. God enters into a fatherless context in a real broken world situation saying, nobody is going to have to live fatherless. No one is going to have to navigate life without someone speaking over them. I send you out with a blessing to do great things in this world. He says, I'm choosing, yes, to ride on clouds, but I'm bringing this relationship unbelievably near and want to be a father to the fatherless. So if you find yourself in this place today, and there's something in you that's like, hey, uh, I can relate to the broken relationship, to the wounds, the disappointment, the abandonment, to being walked out on, to being mistreated. I can relate to all that. And I need you to hear God draw close this morning and say, there's a special place in my heart for you. There's a special place in my heart for you and I'm moving towards you. I'm coming your way because I know how important it is for you to have a father wrap his arms around you. And I want to be a father to the fatherless, not just a bigger version of what you've known. I want to be a mind-blowing version of what you've known. C.S. Lewis, author of 
Chronicles of Narnia, came into conflict a little bit with A.W. Tozer's quote. And uh, so there's a little bit of a theological debate. And Tozer, like we said earlier, says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, C.S. Lewis says in response to that, he says, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important indeed. How we think of him is of no importance except insofar as to relate to how he thinks of us. So you're like, "Uh uh-oh. What team are you on? Is it Tozer or is it Lewis? And the right answer is yes. Yes to both. That how I think about God is the most important thing about me because I'm moving towards the mental image of God. But as I'm moving towards this mental image of God, God helps me through the revelation of Jesus to see that he is the perfectly heavenly father. And when I see that he is the perfectly heavenly father, then I understand how my perfectly heavenly father sees me And how he sees me trumps how I see me. How he sees me trumps how others see me. How he sees me becomes the guiding principle of my life. So the million dollar question this morning is this. How does God see you? How does he see you? Well, there's a lot, but I want to give you just five that God has been just stretching my heart around this week. And I hope this is life-giving to all of you. Number one is this, how the Father sees you. The Father loves you. The Father loves you. And listen, I know that as I say this, most of you in this room are like, are you serious? Like that's, that's the big revelation? That's the one you're going to kick off with, Drew. Like, you, you studied all week for this. You went to school to walk in here and just tell us that the Father loves us. Wow, a, a big deal. The vast majority of us find ourselves in two camps, or one of two camps. We're either underwhelmed by that fact, or we're unbelieving. You're underwhelmed or unbelieving. And the truth is, if you could somehow get outside of yourselves for just a moment today, and if all of a a sudden, if there was a spotlight that, 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 that kind of just came down on any of us this morning, that if we're honest, like we don't feel loved, I believe that you'd be overwhelmed with how many people on your row there was a light on. Oh, you've heard the words, for God so loved the world. You've heard them. You can repeat them. You just don't believe them. They're not living in you. And I'm talking about business owners, teachers, parents, college students sitting in this room right now, light shining straight down on them, saying, I don't feel loved. I don't even know if I feel worthy of feeling loved. Because you know the the broken relationships with your dad. That all the issues with your dad, that we're still walking away convinced that it was all about us. 
Real talk. Some of us, we had that conversation where our our dads sat us down and, and, and looked us in the eyes and said, sweetheart, it's gonna be a little different from here on out. There's gonna be a little bit of a transition. Dad's not gonna be around as much. He's not gonna be living at this house. And, and, and though he, he looked us straight in our eyes and, and tried our best to convince us that this has everything to do with him and has nothing to do with you, your little heart at eight or 12 or 15 heard, it's all about you. It's all about you. And somewhere in the mix, we begin to believe that we're not really loved because if we were, he would have stayed around. And for some of you, for the first time ever, God just wants you to see today how deeply loved you are. I don't know a lot, but I know this, that you are loved and you are treasured. First John 3 would say it this way. John says, see, that's a key word, see. Don't miss it, see. See how great a love the Father has lavished on us. Not a little love, not some silly Note in the mail for your birthday kind of love, like lavished love, such lavish love that his son was willing to be crushed on the cross for you and I. And in doing that, he is speaking to you and I, I will never leave you behind. I'm not moving on without you. I'll never forsake you. On the contrary, I will break down every wall, climb up every hill, run through all of the darkness for you. I'll pay any price to get you to see how great a love the Father has lavished on us, that we should become children of God. And then I love the little add-on. He just says, which we are. To see, that's the key word. How great is the love of the Father that he's lavished on us and you're never gonna fully be able to rejoice in it until you see it. Until you see it, you can't move in it. Until you see it, you can't champion it. You can't breathe it. You can't grow into it. So my prayer has been, God, help us to see you as Father and to realize that we are loved by you. It has been one of my life goals as a dad to tell each of my kids that I love them 20,000 times before they graduate. That's it. Boils down to about three times a day. I just tell them I want them to know I love you. I love you. I love you. Tilly's got this new game where we start to like whisper in each other's ears and tell a secret. And, uh, and she'll whisper me and she just says, mac and cheese. And then she says, I love you. And so she'll, she'll go, tell me a secret, tell me a secret. And I'll whisper, I say, mac and cheese. And then she goes, now tell me you love me. I love you. The Father loves you. The second one, the Father's proud of you. He's proud of you. He delights in you. He's pleased with you. Tilly is in this, she's two and a half, and so she's in this stage where... Uh, she like only listens right now to major, like she just really, her, all of her musical catalog is really just Taylor Swift. 
every little thing becomes a stage to Tilly. And she like steps up on the fire hearth and she's got, I mean, she hips and her hands. I mean, it's like everything that she's seen and she can sing a lot of words to a lot of Taylor Swift songs and a lot of them I'm not proud of. Um, but we came home with our, our son, Lyndon, and, and immediately she begins to perform. And I just pulled Jane aside and I was like, it's so cute and we love it and we celebrate it. But I so desperately... I never want my daughter to think that she has to perform for me. I never want her to go to get my dad's attention or my dad's love. I've got to learn, I've got to dance, or I've got to be good at sports, or I've got to be good like, academically. No, I want her to go, sweetheart, you, I'm proud of you, period. If you don't do another thing, I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with you. I delight in you. When Jesus gets baptized at 30 years old, He's about to start his public ministry. He goes down, John the Baptist baptizes him. And when he gets baptized, he comes out of the water and the scripture says that the sky like opens up and there's the symbol of the Holy Spirit and a dove comes down and then there's a voice, this loud voice from heaven speaking over Jesus. And it says this, this is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. What's the scripture communicating? That the father looks at the son and says, I'm, I'm proud of him. Like, that's, that's my boy. Before Jesus ever walked on water, before he ever turns water to wine, before he ever heals the sick or feeds the 5,000, before he does any of that stuff, that the Father would look at him and say, I'm proud of him. I'm pleased. And that same assurance goes over you and I, if we are his children, that he looks at you and says, hey, listen, I'm proud of you. Like, I'm, I'm wild about you. Like, I delight in you. And you don't have to earn that. You don't have to dance for me. You don't have to sing Taylor Swift for me. But there is nothing that you will ever do that will make God more proud of you than he is right now. Flip side, there's nothing you'll do, ever do to make him less proud of you. God is so proud of his kids. And some of us, that's what we need today just to be reminded that God loves you and that he's really, really pleased with you. The third thing is this. Not only does God love us, he's proud of us. The third thing is the Father will always take care of you. He'll always take care of you. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. He just says, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father, there's that word again, feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Jesus is saying that this Father who sees you, who loves you, who's proud of you, he knows all of your needs, even the most basic ones, and he's going to take care of all of it. That's so reassuring. He goes on in uh, chapter 7, verse 7, and he says this. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus is telling you and I today that you have, maybe, maybe you're in this place, and you're like, I have no idea what the next step for me is. I haven't taken the first step, or I'm not sure what the next step is. And Jesus is just going to give us the next baby step. And he says, wherever you find yourself, whatever it is that you need, 
just ask. Just knock. If God really is that great of a father, then ask him to show you. God, if you really can't open the door that I need you to open, then open it, because that's all I got today. That's all I can do is just ask. That's all I can do is knock. Jesus goes on to unpack it this way. He says, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, there's a word once again, in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Now church, listen, I know that we're, this whole message has been, we've been kind of slowly treading through a very sensitive space, very painful place for many of us. And some of you are like, hey, Drew, listen, you don't understand. Like that scripture, I, I, it's, I, I don't even believe that. Why? Because when, when I asked my dad for bread, he, he gave me a stone. I, I, I wanted a fish and, and he gave me a snake. It almost feels like my dad was out to get me. But I think even in our imaginations, and for the vast majority of us in this room, our experiences affirm that even though our dads, although they were broken and sinful, they still tried their best at some level to at least take care of our needs. And Jesus said, if your earthly dad, who's like a sinful person, could do that, how much more will your heavenly father give you what you need? And I believe that the greatest step that many of us could take today is just being willing to take a risk and step into the gap and just say, God, I'm going to ask because I need you to be a father. Because God, I need a father. I need a blessing that I've never known. I need a breakthrough. I need to get healed or freed from my past. So I'm going to ask believing that you are the how much more God. I'm gonna believe what God is wanting to do right now is not only redefine our view of him as some cosmic force or grandpa in the sky or spiritual religious being that's just out there, but for you to go, he really is father and to really see him as father. Move fast. Fourth one is this. The father always protects you. He always protects you. My, my job as a dad is to protect my kids. And yes, I wanna protect my kids from mosquitoes and snakes in the grass and kidnappers. But the truth is that's really less than maybe 1% of the job. 99% of the time I'm protecting them from themselves. I'm protecting them from hurting themselves, from wanting to do something that could damage them. And so when I say protect us, I'm not, I'm not talking about protecting us from things that we think are bad, but God is willing to protect us from ourselves, to lovingly correct, or to use this word that nobody likes, to step in and discipline us. Like the scripture in Hebrews 12, he says this, he says, my son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father, father does not discipline? 
If you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and life? For they discipline for us a short time based on what seemed good to them, but it, he does, does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. And then he says in verse 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. God loves you enough to protect you from yourself. We've used this illustration before, but it's just, I mean, think about my daughter. Like, we live on a very busy street. And as she's playing in the yard and there's a swing, there's, she has this tendency or curiosity to want to step into the street. And people are going way too fast. And the, and the truth is, like, listen, as a dad, I watch her I mean, step into the street and I will grab her really quick. And if I need to, we'll do whatever it takes so that she doesn't step into that. That means spanking her or we have a talk or we put boundaries. Like, I'll do whatever it takes to keep my daughter out of the streets. And here's the deal. It's not because I don't love her. It's not because I want to steal her joy. Or take what makes her happy. She thinks that playing in the street is what will make her happy. But I'm her father and I know better. And I don't want her to end up dead. Hit by a car going 45 miles an hour around the corner. And so I'm willing to step in and say, no, 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 sweetheart. And if it takes scaring you a little bit to keep you out of the street, I'll do that so that you can live life and life to the fullest. If you have a father that real talk may not do it the way you would do it, but praise God he doesn't do it the way you do it. That's willing to step in and go, I know you think that'll bring you happiness. I know you think that's what life is all about, but I'm willing to discipline you to keep you, lovingly correct you, to put you on the path so that you can experience life and life to the fullest. He loves you. He is not holding out on you. He's protecting you. Lastly, the Father always forgives you. He always forgives you. He welcomes you back. Jesus tells this beautiful story in Luke 15 about this son who looks at his dad and ultimately says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I can't wait for you to die, so can I just get my inheritance? The dad liquidates his assets and gives him his portion of the inheritance. And the son leaves, goes into the streets, and the scripture says that he just wastes all of it on wild living. Goes bankrupt. He gets to the point that he gets a job as just like feeding pigs. And he's so hungry that he longs for that food. And he comes to this realization, of like, I should go home. Because even the servants in my dad's house are better off than me. Like, I should just be a servant. I can't be a son anymore, but maybe I could be a servant. And so he brushes his clothes off, and he starts heading home. And on his way home, he starts practicing the speech. Like, hey, I've sinned against you, Dad, and I've sinned against God. Like, just make me a servant. I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against God. Just, just make me a servant. And the Scripture says that as he's walking, that he's still a long way away, the Father sees him and begins to run after him. Men didn't run in that day and age. Incredibly undig like indignified. And as he's running, he gets closer. And you've got to think the son's going, oh, here, here we go. Here we go. I'm about to get it. 
And he gets completely taken off guard as the dad wraps his arms around him and begins to hug him. The son begins to pull out a speech from memory, but the dad cuts him off and he's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear it. My son was lost and he's been found. He was dead and now he's alive. Kill the fattened calf. Let's throw a huge party. Invite Coldplay. Let's make this thing a big deal. <laughs> Church, Jesus tells that story to remind every single one of us in this room, no matter how far you feel like you've drifted away, no matter how far you feel like you've run, no matter what you've done, the Father is waiting for you. And when you come home, when you take that one step, he fills in the gap. He wraps his arms around you and he doesn't wave his finger. He's like, I, I told you so. I knew this would happen if you would just listen to me. Now you gotta pay back what you owe. No, none of that. He looks at you and he says, like, you were, you were gone. And now you're back and let's, let's throw a party. Let's tell the city. Let's invite everyone. Because my son and my daughter was dead and now they're alive. Like that's the posture of the father towards you, church. And until you realize that, you will spend your life trying to prove that you're worthy of love or try to pay God back instead of just experiencing his love. Instead of just living out the forgiveness. I, I'll just say this. We don't want to put it up on the screen. Church, it is only when you see God as the father that he is that you begin to realize that your fundamental identity is not on what you own, what you drive, your job, your sexuality, or whatever it is the world wants to label you with. Your primary identity, once you see him as father, is now as a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. And it is only when you understand your identity that you can begin to walk in obedience towards him. Only then. For those of us in this room that have it backwards, we feel like, yeah, yeah, God's father, but I've got to be obedient enough and that maybe I can earn my identity as son and daughter. I need you to hear that's not sonship, that's slavery. And the vast majority of us in this room, our entire lives, we've been told if we're obedient enough, if we're good enough, if we do X, Y, or Z, then God will love you and he will accept you as a son and daughter. And it has led to nothing but slavery. We call it religion. But the truth is that God speaks your identity over you and it's when you receive that identity that then you can walk into the life that he's called you to. Men, my prayer for you, all of us today, is yes, that we would experience God as Father, we experience his love. Men, specifically today, this is my hope for you. Just as a sidebar. That you would realize today that you're called to be more, you're called up but you will never be the father that you were intended to be until you first have a heavenly father. You're never gonna be able to show your kids the love that they require or need and deserve until you first receive the love of the father. You're never gonna be able to show your kids fully that you are proud of them until you realize first that God's proud of you. 
that you can take care of them, that you can protect them, that you can always forgive them, but you can't do that until you experience the forgiveness fully of the Father. You can do a dim version, a shadow version of it. But God is inviting you into so, so much more. And we get this, we receive this through Christ and Christ alone, church. That Ephesians 1 or 2, sorry, I would say, for through him, Jesus, we have access to the Father. But to all who receive him, John 1, Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I have all access pass to the Father. So today, listen, I wish I had some really cool illustration to end this thing. So I'm just going to kind of end now and I'm just going to kick it to you. And as custom, we just want to give you 120 seconds for you just to sit with the Father and ask just two questions. This is so important. This may be the most important thing that we do in our gathering together. But you ask these two questions. God, what are you saying to me? Like, what are you, what are you speaking to me? Like, we, we try so hard, church, to help you, like, grow in your ability to hear from God. Not just some guy on stage. Because the truth is, listen, none of you in this room need to hear from me. Like you don't need my wisdom or my encouragement or my thoughts on the Bible. You need to hear from God. And so what is he saying to you? What is he whispering to your heart? And then the second question is this. As he's speaking to you, what are you going to do about that? Like how can you step into obedience? How can you step into belief and trust in that? Far too often, we walk into a room like this and we hear from God, God speaks to us. We walk out and nothing changes and we do nothing about it. We come back here and we go, okay, God speak to us. He speaks to us and then we do nothing about it. And eventually God's like, hey, why am I wasting my time? Our information is here and sadly our obedience is here. So don't miss it, church. Like, What is God speaking to you? What does he want you to know? What does he want you to receive? And how does that affect your tomorrow? That's what we're after. So take this time and let God speak to you. Write it down, journal it. And then we're gonna pray. Take this time. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.